chapter 3. As we continue our, our study through the book of Philippians this morning, we come to Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. And just a reminder that the, uh, Paul has been uh, warning us and warning the Philippians against the dangers of works righteousness, and then uh, saying how uh, it's his desire to know Christ more fully and completely. And so as you turn to Philippians chapter 3, um, I'm going to ask that we, uh, before we read God's word together, that we bow together and ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. So let's, uh, let's pray together this morning. Oh Lord, how good it is to celebrate your faithfulness in the life of the church. Lord, how good it is to be part of the body of Christ. And we taste that and see that this morning, and we honor you and, and praise you, Lord, as the giver of these gifts. And how good it is, O oh Lord, to, to have your word. We celebrate that as we uh, hand out Bibles to our third graders, and we celebrate that, Lord, as we now turn our attention to your word. Lord, what a gift that you have revealed yourself to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through the written word, that we may read these words and come to know you better. That we read these words and our faith is strengthened and, and grows. We read these words and we find the source of, of life, of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We read these words and we're nourished and nurtured. as we taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we can say with the Apostle Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Lord, may your word speak to us this morning. So fill us with your spirit and give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive, that it may be for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 16. So again, Paul has just been talking about wanting to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And he says in verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things, and if so, on some point you think differently, then to, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up what we have already attained. You may be seated. I can uh, still remember the first time I ever ran a long-distance race. I was in the sixth grade. And it was at our annual track and field event at school. 
And I'd always done the, the sprint races, like the 75-yard dash. It's the only thing I'd ever run, and I was pretty good at it. I, I, was, I was really fast when, in my little school. And so that was the only thing I'd ever really done. But on the day of the race, my teacher asked if I would run the mile race instead because the boy who'd been planning on running that race sprained his ankle. And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to give that a try. And when the time for the big race came, I, I took my my position in the starting blocks, and the gun went off, and I just took off running as fast as I could. And I couldn't believe how well I was doing. You know, I was leaving everybody else in the dust. And, and I was beginning to wonder, why did I ever fool around with a 75-yard dash when I clearly, this is my specialty, this is my, my race, I can't believe how good I am. I'm going to leave everybody far, so far behind. And then things began to change. At about the quarter mile mark, my breathing was getting heavy and my legs were getting tired and the other runners were beginning to gain on me. By the half mile mark, my lungs were burning and my legs were like rubber and I had fallen to third place. And from there, it just went downhill. And my pace continued to slow as I was huffing and puffing and barely lumbering along. And, and, and by the end of the race, I kind of stumbled across the finish line somewhere near the end of the pack. And I learned that day a very important lesson. Well, I learned a lesson in humility, for one. Uh, but another lesson I learned about running, and that is that it takes stamina to do long-distance running. And in our text this morning, that's really the image that the Apostle Paul has in mind. He says that's what the Christian life is like. All the language he uses is that of a, the language of a, of a distance race. The Christian life, he says, is like running a long-distance race. And the problem for so many of us is that we dwindle and fade. We may start really strong, but then we, we kind of, like I did in my sixth-grade race, we kind of peter out and we grow complacent. You see, Paul knew that in warning believers against the dangers of works righteousness, which is what he has been doing in the previous verses, right? Warning uh, us as Christians about the dangers of, of works righteousness. And Paul knew that in doing that, in warning us against that danger, some might swing too far the other way. And they would stop striving for holiness. And they would settle for sort of this bland, middle-of-the-pack, do-nothing mentality. Or they might even stop running altogether. And so Paul writes in these verses to, to sort of spur us on in the race of faith. And he shows us three ways in these verses to run with perseverance to the very end. So the first way to run the race of faith is by forgetting what is behind. Paul says in verse 13, he says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. And the it there is uh, the goal of the, the race, which is, we're going to identify that in just a minute, but that's what he's talking about. I do not yet consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Now, I think that what Paul means by, by forgetting what is behind is not looking back to our old way of life before Christ. The life that, that is tied to the things of this world. Uh, Paul describes this old way of life in Ephesians chapter 2, where he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. 
If we are in Christ, then we have been given new birth into a new life, and we are to put the old way of life and all of its cravings and all of its desires behind us. You see, Paul knows how seductive and how tempting that the old way of life is. He knows how easy it is to go back to the, the old cravings of the flesh. That even when, we are, when, when we're called and, and set on this, this race and, and set on the path pursuing Christ, even still that sinful nature creeps in and, 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 and entices us with the, the things of the past. The people of Israel looked back to the leeks and onions of Egypt and so they grumbled their way to death in the desert. Lot's wife looked back to Gomorrah and all of its enticements and so became a pillar of salt. You see, the sinful nature doesn't die easily and there's something within us that, that, that keeps drawing us back to the things of this world. In uh, John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress, a Christian is called to leave his old life behind, to leave the ways of this world behind. And it's been revealed to him that, that all who stay in the way of this world are doomed to destruction. And once, he, once that's revealed to him, it becomes a, a, this, this burden, this weight that he, that he has to escape it. And he tries to convince his wife and his children to leave with him. He says, there's nothing but destruction here. We have to, we have to leave, but they won't listen to what he says. And so he flees on his own. And as Bunyan describes it in his own words, he says this, I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door when his wife and his children began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers to his ears and he ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. And so Bunyan says, he looked not behind him, but he fled toward the middle of the plain. That's a picture of how we are to run the race of faith. We, we run forgetting what is behind. On August 7th, uh, 1954, one of the, the greatest mile run races uh, ever took place. And, and no, it was not my uh, sixth grade race. It was a different one. It was uh, at the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada. And the race was touted as the Miracle Mile because it was a matchup between the only two runners in the world who would ever run a four-minute mile. And so one runner, did anybody know, by the way, who the runners, two runners were? Or one of them? What? Yes, Bannister. And you said Bannister too, right? Bannister and John Landy. So the British runner, uh, Roger Bannister, and uh, the Australian runner, John Landy. And in the early part of the race, uh, Landy got off to a pretty substantial lead, uh, but by the third lap, Bannister was gaining on him. And so when they came into the final stretch, they, they were almost like neck and neck, and the crowd was going wild because it was such a tight race, and they were both running with all their might as fast as they could, and Landy started running faster in the home stretch, but then Bannister kicked it into high gear, and he uh, started gaining on him, and he, they were going kind of neck and neck the whole way. And then came the infamous moment that has been replayed thousands of times. The moment that, in fact, has been memorialized in bronze statues with a crowd roaring in, their, in the final stretch. Landy couldn't hear Bannister's footsteps close behind him, so he had no idea where Bannister was. And in one sort of fatal lapse of concentration, Landy looked back. And that infamous glance backward 
proved to be just enough of a distraction that Bannister was able to pull into the lead and win the race. As we run the race of faith, Paul says we are to do so forgetting what is behind. Putting behind us those things that, that keep us tied to the things of the earth and away from the things of the kingdom. As Jesus said, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so it begs the question of us this morning, what are those things that keep drawing us back? In your thought life, in your financial life, in your, uh, in your day-to-day living, what are those things that that keep you glancing backward, that keep you tied to the things of this world, invite you to to ask that question of yourselves and then surrender them to Jesus and to run in such a way that you forget what is behind. If you want to run the race of faith with perseverance, that's the first step, forgetting what is behind. The second way to run the race of faith is tied to the first, and that is that we run by straining toward what is ahead. Uh, Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, the picture here, the, again, the language that Paul uses is very clearly drawn from that of the, the games, and the, the Greek games were such a, a prominent part of, uh, of the, the life, uh, like the Olympic games in, in Paul's day. I mean, very, uh, it was a huge event and, and very, uh, you know, very popular. And so Paul draws on that imagery here, and so it's a picture of, of running a race with this laser focus on the finish line and the prize that awaits at the end of the race. And for believers, the prize that awaits at the end of the race is knowing Christ in the fullness of his glory. That's what Paul was talking about. Remember uh, in the previous verses, which you looked at last week, he said, he said, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ fully and completely. I want to know Christ and the, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and, and becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I want to know Christ. In other words, in the, the full spectrum of his being as, as fully and completely as I possibly can. In fact, Paul said, everything else, everything else in in this life, everything else is like garbage in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And now he goes on to say that he has not yet attained the full realization of this prize, that he he knows Christ, but he wants to know more, and he knows that he won't know him fully until the last day, until his salvation is fully realized. And so he says he strains toward that goal like a runner straining toward the finish line because Paul knows that at the end of the race when this life is over, what will await him is not a crown, uh, a crown uh, like a wreath crown that they would place on, on the victors' heads in the games, not that kind of crown, but what awaits him at the end of the race is the one prize for which he most deeply longs. And that is that he will finally get to know Christ in the unveiled and unhindered and uninterrupted fullness of his glory. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Knowing fully. What Paul wants is to know Christ in the fullest, fullest extent possible, in the fullness of his glory. And so the prize at the end of the race of faith 
is just that, is knowing Christ in the unveiled fullness of his glory. And this, in fact, is the very purpose for which we were made, whether or not we realize it, if we are in Christ, then we are made to know Christ fully. We were made to find our deepest joy and satisfaction in knowing him. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, the chief end of man, the chief purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We were made to delight and to find our deepest delight and satisfaction in God and in knowing Christ. You know, one of the, uh, now that it's hunting season, one of the, well, for one, you'll be hearing more stories probably about hunting. It always happens every fall. But one of the things I enjoy about hunting is getting to see our dog, Ruby, do the one thing that she most loves to do. You know, if you've ever had a golden retriever, uh, and ours is a field-bred golden, so she's bred for hunting, but you know golden retrievers are great family dogs. They like a lot of things. They like everything. I mean, they're delighted about anything. She she wakes up in the morning just delighted to greet a new day. You know, every day is like the best day she's ever experienced. That's kind of the nature of a golden retriever. And so she loves, she likes a lot of things. She likes to go for walks. She likes to ride in the back of the truck. She likes to go swimming. She loves to eat. Uh, She likes just any kind of attention. It's she. It's all great to her. But there is one thing that drives her the most. One thing that brings the most satisfaction, and that is hunting. When she is hunting, her entire body quivers with excitement. And you think think she's freezing cold, but no, it's just that she's that excited to be out there. Her eyes are laser-focused, scanning the skies for birds, and she whines with anticipation, and it seems so strange that she finds so much delight in something that seems like it would be so miserable. Because think about what that means for her. What, 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 what hunting entails for a retriever, for especially a, a duck hunting dog, is slogging through mud and getting all tangled up in weeds, battling waves, uh, plunging herself into the freezing cold icy water with ice, icicles you know, uh, clung to her, to her fur. And all of this just to pick up a dead duck with her mouth. Why in the world would she find so much delight in doing that? I don't understand it. The only way to make sense of her finding such delight in this is because this is what she was made to do. This is her purpose. It's in her blood. And it is her greatest delight to do the thing she was made to do. Well, you see, we were made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we have been chosen by God from before the foundation of the world, then it is in, in our blood to find our greatest delight and satisfaction in knowing Christ. This is the goal toward which we are to strain, not just because it's the right thing to do as disciples, but because it is what we were made to do. And it's the only thing that brings true and lasting satisfaction to our souls. And yet so often, we settle for second best, don't we? We don't strain towards that goal of knowing Christ in the fullness of his glory. We don't long for it because we settle for the empty delights of lesser things. 
Just like the people of Israel, we forsake the spring of living water for these broken cisterns that don't hold any water. And I love the way C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Weight of Glory. It's a familiar quote, but I'll read it for you again. So uh, C.S. Lewis said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with, with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We do not strain toward the greatest thing because we so easily settle for lesser things. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, then God is calling you through these words of Paul to stop settling for second best, to keep your eyes and your hearts fixed on the prize of knowing Christ. And, and I, you know, I'll say that it's not something that just comes naturally. It's not that we just automatically, that's, that's the only thing we want. It's an acquired taste. It takes time and discipline to develop. And so part of that developing that acquired taste is to come away from the lesser things and to cultivate a renewed hunger for Christ as you spend time in worship and in the Word. David Livingston was a Scottish missionary to Africa in the 19th century, and after serving for many years in Africa, he returned for a short time to England, and someone asked him when he was back home, he said, uh, where, where will you go now? And he answered, I'm ready to go anywhere as long as it is forward. And this is how we are to run the race of faith as well, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, looking ever forward with hearts and eyes fixed on the goal of finishing the race and knowing Christ in the fullness of his glory. So we have seen that the way to run the race of faith means forgetting what is behind in the past and straining toward what is ahead of us in the future and then the last way that Paul says to run the race has to do then with the present. And that as we are to run by pressing on in the present with grace-driven endurance. Paul uses that expression, press on, two times in these verses. He says in verse 12, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And then again in verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And that expression, uh, to press on, is a translation of the Greek word dioko, uh, which can also be translated as uh, to pursue or, or to chase, or even in some contexts, to, to persecute. It has this, the basic sense of the word is to move quickly and energetically towards an objective. And the verb, as Paul uses it here, is in the present tense, which gives it this sense of, of ongoing, continual activity. So uh, a better translation would be to, to keep on pursuing or to keep pressing on. Day in and day out, hour upon hour, moment by moment. You see, the call to discipleship is a, a call to a costly, ongoing, strenuous pursuit. The life of discipleship is not a casual stroll. 
as will become clear if you just read the Gospels. It is a grueling battle, a grinding marathon that we are called to run with endurance. But here's the thing that I think uh, that I want to end on this morning because I think it's just a, a critical not only to the, our understanding of how, what it means to run this race, but of this text itself. And that is that this endurance to which we are called is a grace-driven endurance. Again, if we go away from this with nothing more than, oh, I guess I got to go out and on my own, muster up my own energy, and I got to run a little harder, run a little faster, and I got to keep on enduring, we, we can't do it on our own. And we're not supposed to do it on our own. We can't even want to do it on our own. It is a grace-driven endurance. Or to say it another way, it is an endurance that is prompted and fueled by God's prior works of grace. We see these uh, prior works of grace in verses 12 and 14. So again, Paul says in verse 12, I press on. That's the present aspect, the, 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 responsibility, the human responsibility piece of it. I press on, and I have to keep on pressing on. I have to run the race to take hold of that. But here's the prior works of grace, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, he pressed on in the way of salvation. Only because it was Christ himself who set him on that road in the first place. And quite literally, actually, if you remember the story from the book of Acts, it was Christ who spoke to Paul from the blinding light of heaven on the Damascus road. And it was Christ who, who stopped him in his tracks and changed him from this church destroyer to a, a church planter. It was Christ who took hold of him and set him on that path of salvation. And it is Christ who will sustain him to the very end. It is because Christ had seized Paul that Paul so longed to seize Christ. We see a similar idea in verse 14 where Paul says that I press on toward the goal. Again, that's that running part, the, the, the effort part. But I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ, then the prize that we press on to attain is the prize that God has called us to attain. And that makes all the difference. Because the call of God refers to that sovereign summons by which God draws us to himself. We see it as one of the links of the salvation chain that Paul names in Romans chapter 8 where he says that those God predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he sanctified, and those he sanctified, he glorified. I love those words. I love that, that, that chain. And, and it, what is so clear is that it's God's work from beginning to end. And, and so, uh, so sure is Paul that it will end in the intended result that God plans and intends that he says at the end that those he sanctified, he glorified. And to be glorified, of course, is a future reality. We won't be glorified until the new heavens and the new earth when we are with Christ and see him in the fullness of his glory. And yet Paul puts it here in the past tense because he is so, certain, so sure and certain that it will be accomplished. We press on in the race of faith, but the God who predestined us and called us will sustain us to the very end. The divine call of God that brought us from death to life also secures for us the prize of salvation at the end of the race. As Jesus himself said, all those the Father gives me all those who are given to me by the Father will come to me. 
And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. We are called to run with endurance the race of faith, and we can run with confidence, knowing that the God who called us will sustain us to the end. I may have told you this story before, but like I've said, I don't really care. I'm happy to tell it again. And I can't remember if I did, so just pretend that you never heard it if you have. But there was a year when I was in college, and I, I worked for a summer as a uh, resort naturalist and a children's activity coordinator at, at uh, Birch Lane Resort in the north, in northern Minnesota. I have no idea how I got the children's activity coordinator part because I had zero experience with any kind of kids. I mean, not, none, zero at all. But I got the job, the resort naturalist, which is kind of what I was more geared toward, and then also along with it, this children's activity coordinator piece. And, and so I was trying to find things to do with the kids that summer, and, and so I decided one, one day to do a nature hike. And, uh, um, you know, it was a great idea, beautiful day, and to, you know, identify trees and, and butterflies and birds and point things out. And so there's about a mile, a little over, a little over a mile path through the woods, and and uh, I was going to take the kids on a nature hike. Now, the kids were uh, ages 10 to 15, except there was one little girl who was three. And again, zero experience with little kids. I figured she's got legs, you know, she can walk. <laughs> so you can do, you know, walk the nature hike with the rest of us. And so we did the nature hike. And, and, and this little girl, she, was this, the, she had this, these dark brown eyes and these dark brown pigtails. And so I said, Let's, we're going to do this, this hike together. And uh, after a couple hundred feet... As you might guess, she was lagging behind. So I encouraged her to, to catch up. You can do it. You know, come on. We got you know, we got, there's more stuff to see. Let's, let's, let's do this hike together. And so she caught up and we went in for a little bit. And then again, a couple hundred feet more, she's lagging behind. This went on for some time, you know, with her lagging behind and, and me uh, encouraging her to keep pressing on and to keep catching up. And she began to get weary and discouraged until finally, and I, and I wasn't getting the message until finally she just plopped herself down in the middle of the trail and she began to sob. Just, just tears streaming down her cheeks. She couldn't go on. And finally, in that moment, I, I don't know why I didn't see it earlier, but finally I understood that her tiny little legs had gone as far as they could go and she could not go any farther. And so I brushed away her tears, and I put her on my shoulder, and I carried her for a good chunk of the way. And she started to point out butterflies and birds and, and trees. And then when she was sufficiently refreshed and rested and the destination was in, was in sight, she went back down and she continued the hike on her own, running and skipping her way to the end. And when we made it back to the campground, she ran up to her mom and dad, and she said, we did a nature hike, and I made it the whole way. And of course she did, but only because I had sustained her. It was I who had called her to join, and it was I who would see to it that she finished. We are called to run the race of faith, and we must run with all that we have, with all that we have within us, but it is God who called us by his grace, and it is God who by his grace will sustain us to the end. Eric Liddell was a famous runner known as the Flying Scotsman. And he was known not only for his running, but for his devotion to Christ, which was put on display 
at the Paris Olympics in 1924 when he refused to run his best events because those events were going to be run on a Sunday and he wouldn't run on a Sunday. But his devotion to Christ, uh, you, you may not know, extended beyond running. In 1925, he became a missionary to China with China Inland Mission, and he devoted his life to serving among the poor. And there he suffered hardship upon hardship, but he kept running hard after Christ. In 1943, he was taken to a concentration camp where he continued to run the race of faith by sharing the good news of Jesus with, the, with those who were uh, around him. And then in 1945, at the age of 43, he died, most likely from malnourishment. And his grave was marked with a simple wooden cross with his name written in boot polish. And as one writer says, if there is one inscription that would be most fitting to be placed underneath his name on that cross, it would be, he died running. The life of discipleship is a grueling marathon. May we run in such a way by the grace of God that it could be said of us in the end, we died running. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we are your disciples. And you've called us, O oh Lord, to run the race of faith with endurance to the very end. To run forgetting what is behind, putting behind us those things that keep us tied to the things of this world and straining toward what is ahead, that goal, the, the prize of knowing you in the fullness of your glory. For you yourself, Lord Jesus, prayed on the night before you were crucified that you wanted all believers to be with you and to know you and to be with you in your glory. And you invite us to run by pressing on in the present with a grace driven endurance, trusting that it is you who called us and who set us on this path and will carry us and sustain us to the end. Oh, Lord, as we come before your throne this morning in a time of silent prayer and response, I pray that you would move us and inspire us, oh, Lord, to run this race of faith with endurance. Oh, Lord, forgive us for the ways that we keep looking back to the things of this world. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for the ways that we have settled for second best and lesser desires and instill within us again a renewed hunger and an acquired taste for the truly satisfying thing of knowing you. O oh Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning.
Oh Lord, give us feet to run the race of faith with endurance to the end. The Apostle Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Oh Lord, may we run in such a way as to win the prize. With every breath, we long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring us home. And day by day, we know he will renew us until we stand with joy before the throne. To this we hold. Our hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.